0: If you'd like, our new Old Testament lesson this morning is from Exodus 2. Exodus 2, and we'll read the whole chapter. This will be our sermon text for this morning. Um, so, Exodus chapter 2, and we'll read the entire chapter. Flower fades and the grass withers, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as, as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took from a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch, and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and while her young woman, women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrew's children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. But the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds, and he even drew water for us and watered the flock. They said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him, that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he named, called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew the reading of the Lord's word from the Old Testament. Now turn in your Bibles to Acts 7 for our New Testament lesson. Acts 7, verses 17 through 22. Part of Stephen's speech, Acts 7, 17 through 22. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased. "...and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was brought up for three months in his father's house. When he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians he was mighty in his words and his deeds sends the reading of the lord's word uh, this morning let's pray and ask him to bless it this morning father we thank you for your word as we've just heard from it we know that you are at work that you see your people and you know so lord we pray that you would open our hearts to hear your word we would hear your words of confrontation of our pride and the comfort of the gospel. Change us, Lord, move us as we listen to your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So what moves God to choose the people that he chooses? Why does God use the people that he uses? If you look in scripture, right, there's lots of people that God says, this person is going to be special and they're going to do my work. Think of all the people that God chooses. Um, Jonah, a man who was obviously opposed to God's uh, mission, and yet the Lord said, he's perfect. Why why Paul? A man who was so opposed to the church that he was out dragging Christians out of their homes and, and making them be stoned and try to make them reject the faith, an enemy of the church. Why did God say, Paul, he's the one I want to use? Why David? Why did God choose David to be king over Israel? David was the runt of the family. He wasn't the tall, handsome firstborn. He was the short, ruddy ruddy youngest. He's not the one that you would point to and say, yes, he's, he's king material. And yet the Lord said, I want to use David. It seems throughout Scripture consistently, the Lord uses unexpected people. He chooses the sinful, the stubborn, the weak. He chooses the foolish, people who the world says shouldn't be special, and yet the Lord says, this is who I choose. I think part of the answer is that the Lord loves to use these people because it shows not their strength, but his. But the Lord delights to use sinful, stubborn, weak people to accomplish his goals because then it's obvious to everyone that it wasn't them who did it, it was God. Because the Lord loves to use what is weak in the eyes of the world to shame the strong. He loves to use what is foolish to shame the proud. So when we come to Exodus 2, we're coming off the heels of probably the worst experience of Israel's lives. Because we read in Acts 7, uh, a condensed version of chapter one of Exodus, recapping what has happened in chapter one, where this king rises over Egypt while Israel is sojourning there, and he oppresses Israel. He subjects them to slavery, and when things continue to get worse and worse and worse, now he says, we're going to kill all the Hebrew male children he issues an order that every male child born to Israel was to be cast into the Nile. This is a dark day, but there's still hope that the Lord is still at work, that he still knows his people. And so when we come to chapter 2, we come and we find a man who is being set apart by God man that the Lord is is clearly saying, this man is going to be special. Something is different about him. And so we're anticipating the fact that he's going to be the savior, someone who's going to bring Israel out of this situation, out of slavery. But what we find in chapter 2 is that even though God loves to use, right, nobody's, he loves to use the sinful and the stubborn, there's a danger to those who have been chosen by God. There's a danger to being set apart by God. And that danger is to believe that you are something more than you are. To believe that it's you who are accomplishing great things for God. That clearly God chose me because I'm special. I have great gifts. Clearly the Lord saw me and said, yes. That person's amazing and I want them on my team. Think of Peter. A man who's walked with Jesus, and yet when the time comes for Jesus to accomplish his mission, Peter says, no, how dare you, Jesus, talk about going and dying. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Peter thought that he was the one doing great things for God, but in reality, he did not understand God's plan, and so he acted rashly. I think that's what we find in Exodus 2. We find a man who is being set apart by God for great things, and yet who starts to believe that he is special, that it's not God who's going to do this, but him, and so he takes matters into his own hands. And predictably, when we do that, things fall apart. So let's look at this chapter. Let's see how the Lord is setting Moses apart. Let's see how that affects Moses, and let's see the, the aftermath. So first, let's see how the Lord is setting apart Moses. Because remember that in this previous chapter, every male child is supposed to be thrown into the Nile and killed. That Israel is being enslaved and targeted. And yet, we find in chapter 1 that they keep growing and multiplying, and being strong. And here in chapter 2, we find this person who, or this family who has a son. In fact, we're not told much about them. We're not told their names. That doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is that they're Levites, and that they have a son, in verse 2. But because we don't get their names, right, we're looking for other details, that this passage actually shows us way more than we think because of the little details. And the first detail is in, is in verse two, right? The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. I think every, every mom looks at their newborn and says, this is the best baby that has ever existed, right? This is clearly the best. Look at this, right? We looked at our son, and even though he looked a little bit like an alien when he was born, he still was good to us and looked beautiful. But that's not what this passage is talking about. It's actually a specific word that verse 2 uses to say that when she saw that he was good, she hid him three months. That's an intentional reference back to Genesis, right? She saw that he was good. she sees something is special about this child. She doesn't know what. She has no idea what the Lord is doing, but clearly this child is special. And so she hides him for three months. But of course, it's hard to keep a screaming baby secret for very long. And so when she could hide him no longer, verse 3, she took from him a basket made of bulrushes, dabbed it with bitumen and pitch, and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. This is probably a, a great example of how to, you know, follow the rules without following the rules, right? Throw every Hebrew male child into the, into the Nile, is what Pharaoh said. Moses' mom said, sure, but you never said I couldn't make a boat for him. So she makes a little, a little basket for him. But again, there's there's a detail, a little word here that clues us into that something more is happening because in verse three it says, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket, uh, a, an ark made of bulrushes. ESV translated, translates it as basket, but this word actually shows up in only one other place, and that's with Noah's ark. She makes a little ark for Moses. She places him in a calm spot in the river. And there's a couple of things that we're supposed to see from her act. First is, we can't help but think about Noah. About the fact that there was a flood of judgment consuming the world, and yet the Lord provided a means of escape. And here in Israel, they are being attacked and targeted, and yet the Lord provides a means of escape to escape the waters of judgment for this child. What Pharaoh intended to be a means of death, God intended as a means of rescue. That he is, is protecting this child. But the second thing that we notice is all these details, and then all these coincidences, right? It tells us all these details about about how she made this, right? We're told what it's made out of. We're told how she dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it, placed it in the reeds, right? All these details about what is going on here, and yet nothing about what she thinks is going to happen, right? Not a word about, well, I hope that this happens, or no prayers all we can assume, right, is that she is, is just praying the whole time and trusting that she has no idea what's going to happen. A crocodile could come and could eat him. But she trusts the Lord. And the Lord delivers. Because notice all the coincidences that happen. It just so happens that when she puts Moses here in the reeds, verse 5 the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river wow, what a coincidence, right? And not just that, but then there's a, wow, her young woman found the baby. And it just so happens that she saw this crying baby and had compassion on it. And it just so happens that Moses's sister happened to be watching at that moment to see if anyone would find it. It just so happens that the sister would come up and say, well, you know, if you want, I could go get someone who could nurse the baby for you. And it just so happens that Pharaoh's daughter says yes. And it just so happens that Moses' own mom gets to raise him. Her faith is rewarded. Because not only is Moses' life spared, but she gets to raise him. And she gets to get paid for it. That is the Lord's working. All these coincidences lining up. All these little details are telling us something about this child is special. God is setting him apart. God is preserving his life. And just like Joseph, God is is moving Moses into Pharaoh's household. Because in verse 10, when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him up out of the water. Just like how Joseph was was put into Pharaoh's household at the perfect time so that Israel might be saved from famine, we're seeing the same pattern, which is telling us that, oh, God is about to do something. God is moving Moses into place so that Moses can be the Savior of Israel. We're just... We feel it in our bones. And I think Moses feels it too. Because think how, think how all of this must be affecting him. Right? He was raised by his birth mom, but he grew up in an adopted household, the king of Egypt. He grew up as royalty. He grew up as, as the son of of the daughter of the divine king of Egypt, surrounded by wealth and opulence. And as Acts said, right, he grew up with all the might and wisdom of Egypt. Undoubtedly, right, he heard the story from his mom about how God saved him. Undoubtedly, he is thinking to himself about how God is moving and choosing him and selecting him, putting him in place. And he's being raised up for something he may not understand exactly what the Lord is going to do, but I think it's, it's more than possible that he knows that God has set him apart. And I think that explains what happens next. Is verse 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, He went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. I think Moses, full of the confidence that God had set him apart, that he was the chosen one who was going to do great things, that this was his chance to do great things for God. And so he struck down this Egyptian. Or he looks this way and he looks that. So we know it's not rage. It's not blind rage. He's not acting completely impulsively. This is Premeditated. Why did he think this was a good idea? Why did Moses think that killing this Egyptian was, was the right thing? And there's, and there's lots of answers out there. If you read any of the commentaries or, or th- anything on this passage, you'll get lots of different interpretations. Some say that Moses was completely in the right, that he was doing the right thing. Right? He was liberating Uh, an oppressed Israelite. Others will say that this was a dark, sinful deed that Moses took a life he had no right to and he shouldn't have. I think with all of life, right, the truth is not black, it's not white, it's gray. I think that Moses had good intentions. He saw someone being beaten and he wanted to help. But I think he took things too far because he, full of himself, said, I'm going to do great things for God. I'm going to take things into my own hands. I'm going to initiate the, the, the freedom of Israel. But in reality, he was out of step with God's plan. He took things into his own hands when that was not what the Lord intended. And I think the next couple of verses just push this home, because the next day, the very next day after taking a life, he goes out and he sees two Hebrews were struggling together. This is verse 13. and Moses said to the man of the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? That's a good question, isn't it? That's a good question. Who made Moses the judge, the jury, and the executioner? It was Moses. Moses made himself the judge, the jury, and the executioner. He was the one who said, This Egyptian needs to die. He was the one who went out and decided that he was the one to arbitrate between two Hebrews. But where does that authority come from? Not from God, but from Moses. Moses imagined himself to be Israel's savior, Israel's king, the man who is going to free them from slavery. Perhaps he thought he was bringing justice. Perhaps he thought he was Going to do something amazing. But I think all you have to do is compare how Moses does it with how God will do it. Because Moses does it in secret. He looks this way and that to make sure no one's watching. And he kills this Egyptian. It's secretive and hidden. Is that justice? Because how does God bring justice? How does God free Israel? Is it private and secret? No. When the Lord frees Israel, it is public, it is loud, everyone knows about it because the Lord has the authority. And the Lord doesn't go straight to killing the Egyptians. Moses did that first thing. But the Lord says that one Egyptian beating a Hebrew is not the problem. The problem is Pharaoh. And so God goes straight to Pharaoh because God knows what the real problem is. God knows what it will take. But even still, he is patient. And it takes 10 plagues for Pharaoh to finally let Israel go. whatever Moses thought he was doing, whatever goals he had in his mind, whether it was right or wrong, he took care of things his way, and then his life fell apart. Because the ones that he tried to save reject him. In Pharaoh, his, his grandfather, I guess in law, seeks to kill him. He has to flee. He has to run to the land of Midian, as verse fifteen tells us. His his world collapses; the bottom falls out. Everybody he's ever known, his his home, it's gone. So he sits down by a well, a nobody. He went from royalty, set apart by God to be this the savior of Israel, to a nobody sitting by a well. And guess what? That's exactly where God wants him. See, God doesn't need Moses. God didn't need Moses to be the Savior. God's the Savior. He doesn't need Moses to be full of these grand ambitions about all the things he's going to do for God. God's going to do the things with or without Moses. The point for Moses is not to, to be this incredible person who's going to do amazing things. The point for Moses is to be nobody and to let God do the work. So this whole process of his life falling apart and being a nobody in a foreign land, that's exactly where God wants him. Because God loves to use nobodies. Because then it just shows that it's God doing the work and not Moses. That's a good place to be. Humbled, and content. Verse 21 says that Moses was content to dwell with a man. It's good to be content to be a nobody, because that's exactly who the Lord loves to use. You don't need to be somebody, you don't need to be an amazing Christian. You don't need to have amazing gifts. You don't need to be like the Pharisees, righteous and super knowledgeable and just really good at everything you do. God loves to use nobodies who don't know what they're doing, who know that they are sinners, that they're weak, that they don't know everything. That's exactly who the Lord loves to use. And that's exactly what we find when we look to Jesus. Because Jesus, though, he was the king of the universe. He was born in a barn. He was content to be a nobody. He wasn't seeking glory, he wasn't seeking his own advantage, he wasn't seeking ambition and to be seen by everybody. He was content. And humble. And though the world looked at him and scorned him, saying, You're not you're not strong. The Lord says, I choose what's weak to shame the strong. Because the cross doesn't look like strength. The cross doesn't look like victory. The cross doesn't look like salvation. To the world, the cross looks like failure and weakness and shame. But to those who look at it with eyes of faith, the cross is the greatest act of salvation. The cross proclaims freedom and victory over sin and over death. Not because you did something, Not because you deserved it, because it was your sin that Jesus died for. He carried your shame. He became your servant so that you can have life. So before we start to think too much of ourselves and start to think that God chose us because we're special, remember the cross. Remember that Jesus died for you while you were weak and a nobody. And that God can use you, and he is, and he delights to do that, not because you have everything, but because he is the one who gives you everything. That is the message of the cross. Let's give thanks to God with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you delight to use the nobodies, that you yourself were content to become nobody and to die for us. Lord, we thank you for all that you have done. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We praise you. May you help us, Lord, to, to be more like Jesus, to be content, to be nobodies, to be humble before you, to know that it's not us who's doing the work, but it's you. And that frees us to rejoice in what you are doing. We thank you, Lord, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.